Good morning, Church on the Trail. We're so happy that you decided to join us this morning. If you are new, we'd like you to raise your hand so we can get a welcome packet in your hand. And in this packet, you will find a connection card. If you fill that out and return it to the connections desk out front, we will give you a special treat as a thank you. I just have a couple announcements for you guys this morning. If you have a fourth, fifth, or sixth grader who would like to be a part of the worship team for the kids' ministry, meet on the kids' side at 12 p.m. on January 30th, and they will learn all the worship songs for February. Uh, our 412 student ministry is having a fun night at Sky Zone on the trampoline park. Um, that is February 4th from 6 to 7.30. Um, visit our website, churchonthetrail.org slash events to register or visit students at churchonthetrail.org for more information. Our student ministry is also having our first worship night on January 19th on Wednesday at 7 p.m. So come out, bring a friend, and join us for that. Good morning. All right, we're going to ask that everybody stand and worship with us this morning. I'm going to need a little participation on the first song. I don't know if everybody knows the song called Child of Love, but there is a piece in it where I will say, yeah. So I need you to repeat it. I will point to you and you say, yeah. So let's practice now. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I am a child of God. Child of love. Sorry. Let's go.
Spread. 
Despite the cold, we are glad to be in your house this morning. Please come and open our ears and our hearts to hear the message Pastor Ed's going to deliver to us this morning. We love you, and it's in your name. Amen. So good morning, y'all. <clears throat> My name is Ed Griffin Hagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff at Church on the Trail. And, um, you know, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday, the day, Monday. And really, here's the deal. My prayer should be your prayer. Sort of the same prayer that he had is this, that we would live in a world and, and, and I say we live in a world, it, it is just the way it is, that there is not black or white or blue or green or purple or magenta or burnt sienna or those are the Crayola colors. There's none of that. There's really, in, in God's economy, that doesn't exist. There's just two classes of people, lost sinners and saved sinners. That's it. Lost sinners and saved sinners. 
And our job as saved sinners is to lead the lost sinners into a saving relationship with the God that created all of us. That's the way the world really should be. Now, call me an ideologue, maybe, and I, like, I get that. But the reality is the, the, the bar doesn't move. We don't move the bar down so we can meet the bar. I mean, that's the way it is. And so that should really, that should be our prayer. Always, that should be our prayer. Um, now, this is going to be a weird transition because, so I've got to transition uh, y'all into a, a little uh, time of giving a time of, of, of receiving a tithe and an offering. And usually that's Richard that does this. But Richard is at home sick. Rhonda, I think, is sick. Um, we have so many people. My wife is at home laying in the bed congested and with a terrible headache. There's so many people. So actually, before we do the offering, let me pray for, for that. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, we pray for uh, all of the people in our church family and beyond our church family. Lord, that are feeling terrible, that are sick, that have the flu, that whatever it is, Lord, we pray for them that you would bring healing into their life, that you would, uh, that you would just take care of it with the snap of your finger. And we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm sure all of y'all have friends and family that are at home sick. Um, but we are at a time where we will receive uh, an offering, a tithe and, and an offering. And, and that we say this all the time, that the giving in our church, the generosity in our church, um, fuels the ministries in our church, and and the the, the plethora, the, the the smorgasbord, I guess, of different ministries. Whether it's and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, actually, later on in the message. But whether it be kids or tots or Route fifteen twenty, which is a men's recovery ministry, or the homeless ministry called M twenty five four, whatever it is, whatever it is, none of that could exist. None of that could really take place without. The generosity and the and the the trusting, um, the trusting the Lord with our stuff, with our resources, and so uh, let me say a prayer over that. Um, and behind me should be, yeah, that's all the mechanically, the different ways that you can give, whether it be uh, with Venmo or with a kiosk out there or churchonthetrail.org/gift, whatever it is. Um, there's plenty of different ways to do that. You know, there's a tithing envelope in the seat back in front of you. Whatever it is, um, there's the different ways. So, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be generous. Lord, we know you love a generous, cheerful heart. And so, Lord, our prayer is that we would be obedient to your word, that we would give not only cheerfully, Lord, that we would give sacrificially, that we would give first and that we would give sacrificially. And so, Lord, we ask you to, to bless the resources that are given today and, and this week, and you would give us the smarts and the discernment to be wise uh, with those resources. So, Lord, we trust you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, hey, y'all, so we jumped into uh, Acts 9 last week, and we saw... And that's where we'll kind of be today. But what we saw last week was uh, we saw Paul on his way to Damascus to continue, you know, wreaking havoc, ravaging the, the, the church there. But then we saw God stop him dead in his tracks somewhere close to Damascus, 150 miles or so northeast of Jerusalem. God stopped him dead in his tracks. We saw Paul hit the ground face first, and we saw a shining light from heaven. And Paul, we saw Paul slash Saul uh, be saved. 
He met the Lord on that dusty road, and he was saved. And what we see there in that moment is like a jumping-off point for a transformed life. And today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, about transformation. We saw the, a massive transformation in Paul, um, in Saul, last week. And we're going to continue that today. And y'all, here's the deal. You hear people talk about, about transformation. You hear people say things like, man, I got my dream job. Been waiting for 10 years. I got my dream job. And it just is, it's just transformed my whole life. Or you hear people say, you know, we've been struggling financially for so long. And old Aunt Bessie passed away and she left us this big bucket of money, and it's just transformed our lives. It's changed, it's just changed our lives. We are blown up all the time with things that can transform our life. We, we see it on the TV, we see it on ads online. It's just this constant different things that will promise, let's say it that way, different things that promise to transform our lives. The revolutionary, patented, adjustable fill of the my pillow. Change your life. It'll give you a night of sleep, and it'll change your life. Regularly sixty nine ninety eight, but if you got your promo code, it's nineteen ninety eight. So for nineteen dollars and ninety eight cents, you can get your whole life transformed. For some of y'all that are as old as as I am in the nineteen eighties. Nike promised if you'd buy some Air Jordans that they would not only change your life, but they would give you some ups. Y'all know what ups are? I ain't got no ups, but I had a sweet pair of white and black and red Air Jordans. Sweet, but I still didn't have any ups. (laughs) Nike said, just do it. It'll change your life. Buy some Airs, some Air Jordans, and it'll change your life. Now, really, y'all, it brings us to the question, can anybody really be transformed? Can you actually take a bad man and make him good? Can you really take a, take a sinful woman and turn her into something wonderful and beautiful? Can you really take a busted relationship and put it back together like a puzzle good as new? Well, psychologists and, and psychiatrists and, and counselors, they're constantly given the task to transform people Changing human behavior, which seems like an impossible sort of task. You try this and try that and do this and do that and self-help and self-love and, and convince yourself that, and you talk to yourself enough and convince yourself that you, are, that you deserve to be happy. The days that we live in, our culture really is blowing us up with Honestly, the most illogical ways to fix and to transform. Like I think that we can transform society if we'll dramatically reduce the amount of police officers on the street because obviously that'll dramatically reduce crime. Like what kind of nonsense is that? Our world blows us up with with the most illogical Things that we say or that they tell us are going to change and fix and transform and redeem and reconcile. Doesn't make any sense. And then we're promised if we throw a bunch of money at stuff, throw a bunch of money around, if 
If people were economically better off, then that would transform them. But for almost ever, we have been the richest people on the planet, and we got our MyPillas, and we got our Air Jordans, and we still see hate and division and rape and murder and violence and robbery and, and, and horrific drug abuse and on and on and on and on. Well, that begs the question, is, is, it, is this just the way it is? Is it, is it just the way it is? And I think the Lord has something to say about it. And again, we're going to be in Acts 9 today, but we're going to jump back six or 700 years and look at, at, at a couple of things in the Old Testament first, Jeremiah in particular. Jeremiah the prophet. He said in, or he writes, he records in chapter 13, Jeremiah 13 verse 23 says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? And then he says, or a leopard his spots. And the verse goes on and says, if the Ethiopian can change his skin and the leopard can change his spots, then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So what God is saying to us is that it is against our very nature to change. It's against our very nature. If the leopard sits in the corner and he reads enough books, and he watches enough Dr. Phil, and he, and he watches enough, enough Oprah, and he reads a bunch, of, a bunch of these books and articles about self-help, and he thinks about it long enough, and he meditates on it long enough, and he gets in touch with his internal yin and yang enough, and he sits with his legs crossed just a certain way, are his spots going to change? So a man, no is the right. Somebody said no. You said no, didn't you? You're right. So a man or a woman doing anything and everything to alter what he or she is is going to fail. Can you get in the shower and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub yourself transformed? No, you can't. Jeremiah says in chapter 2, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Well, okay, then maybe we need some more discipline. Maybe we need some more rules. Maybe we need some more correction. Maybe we need some more regulation, some firmer laws. Well, Jeremiah says later on in chapter 2, In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. In other words, they didn't accept any more discipline. So God is like, we've tried more rules, we've tried more regs, we've tried more discipline, didn't work. We tried some really good soap, and that didn't work. My pillows, no. Even the new my slippers, no, none of that, none of that worked. Some cool Air Jordans, no. Why no? How about the newest and greatest and best-selling self-help book? How about focusing everything that you have? And everything that you are on emotional self-care. It's self, 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 self. B.F. Skinner. Anybody ever heard of B.F. Skinner? Famous psychologist in the 20th century. He said the only way to transform people is to just crush them. Well, Proverbs 27 says this. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Well, that tells me that if you crush a fool, what do you think you get? A crushed fool. That's what you get if you crush a fool. You can't, like, you can't 
provide a, a destroying, crushing, annihilating sort of experience for a person and then expect to turn them into something wonderful and beautiful. You can't, it doesn't work. Now, y'all are probably like, what does this have anything to do whatsoever with Acts chapter 9 and Paul? Well, I say all of that to say this. There is no physical outside force, no tangible external anything that can transform or change us. And you say, well, why, why, why not? And I say, because the problem's not an outside problem. The problem's not an external problem. The problem is an inside problem. It's an in here somewhere problem. It's internal. We're going to get transformation, real transformation. It's going to come from the inside. Jeremiah said in 17, hit the nail on the head in Jeremiah 17, 9. He said, the heart is deceitful among, uh, above all things. The heart is deceitful and it's desperately sick. And it's got to be fixed from the inside. We can't change people. We can't, we can't transform people from the outside. Transformation has got to work from the inside. From the inside. We hung on to the yoke of the law for so long, for a couple of thousand years, thinking that the law was going to transform us. The law don't transform you. The law points you to the one who can transform you. But we look we look at externally for all kind of little quick fixes, silver bullet stuff. So it's got to come from the inside. Well, how does that work? Who, who can do that? What can do that? Almighty God is the only one that can change the human heart. And he's been in the business of transforming people for a long, long time. Paul 20, 30 years later, writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what a beautiful thing, y'all, to be in Christ. What does that mean? I'm in Christ. He says, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. He doesn't say that he's a rebooted this or he's a new creation. The old has passed away, Paul writes. The new has come. Well, welcome to the new. Like, welcome to the new, Paul says. Romans 6, 4, Paul's writing about walking in the newness of life. You know, when we do, when people take the God plunge here, when they, we, we water baptism, when we lower them down into the water, we say you are buried in the likeness of his death, and then when they, you come up out of the water, raised to walk in the what? Newness of life. Raise your hand if you remember your baptism, water baptism, baptized. Is that not just the coolest feeling? Like life goes into slow motion as you come up out of the water and somebody's saying you're raised to walk in the newness of life. What an incredible, because you're a new creation. You've been born again. Welcome to the new, Paul says. Now let me, let me get back to Acts chapter 9 where we see one of the people that God is transforming, Saul of Tarsus. Last week we saw him on his way up to Damascus and he's going up there to ravage the church and murdering and dragging folks off and kicking door down, doors down and arresting and beating and, and wreaking havoc and, and ravaging the church. But then we saw God stop him again. We saw God stop him dead in his tracks and absolutely metamorphosed him. There's your word of the day. Transformed him. He metamorphosed him. I'm not going to try to spell that. But he changed him. 
He transformed him. The light shone just from one second to the next. And as we continue on in in chapter 9 in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the characteristics, the traits of a transformed life. Particularly his, but it's a template, it's a model, it's a pattern for all of us. For everybody that's, that's, that has been um, born again, for everybody that is a new creation, there's this pattern that we see. The first characteristic, the first transformation trait is faith and trust in the Savior. Now that was all of last week's message, so I'm not going to talk about that one very much. Suffice it to say, it begins with placing saving faith and saving trust in the Savior. It's the blood of the cross. It's Jesus that saves. It's not even faith that saves. Faith is the instrument, but it's not even faith that saves. It's the blood that was spilled all over that cross that saves. And so this, this first trait is you've you got to place saving faith and trust in Jesus. It begins with that. We can really take all of last week's message, wrap it up in that statement. Number one. Number two is this. The second thing that shows up, the second characteristic, the second trait is fervent prayer. And if you've got to worship God, these are the couple of three little uh, fill-in-the-blank bullets. Fervent prayer. Major characteristic of someone who is born again is prayer. It's just a natural response to salvation. It should be. Prayer is not really something that you've got to beg Christians to do. If you're born again, you should just do it. It should just happen. It should just be part of your life. Communicating with the one that saved you, it ought to happen. Now, last week we stopped at, at verse 5 of Acts 9. I want to read you the, uh, a couple of verses or three or four verses to get us up to 10. And then we'll jump in, talk a little more about prayer. And he said, who are you, Lord? That's Paul. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city. Rise up. It's like Paul saying, okay, like what am I supposed to do? And Jesus says, rise up. Rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's blind. So they, his little entourage, led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul's blind. He's blinded by the sight of Jesus. Remember that, that event. He's on the road and a bright light from heaven, which is probably the understatement of the century. Remember what I compared it to? It's transfiguration. Peter and James and John, the transfiguration. And so this light from heaven shone around him and he's blinded by the sight of Jesus. So he's headed to Damascus on fire to destroy the church and now all he can see is the blinding face of Christ. It is like when if you ever, this is going to sound dumb, but if you ever stared at the sun, even for just a few seconds, raise your hand if you've ever done that, ever looked at the sun, and then you close your eyes and what do you see? You see the sun, the S-U-N, you see the sun in the darkness of your eyelids you see the light from the sun. It's the oddest thing. I promise you that's what Paul saw, except he sees the S-O-N. Every time he closes his eyes, that's all he can really see is his Savior. All he can see right now is this Jesus that he was convinced 
was dead, buried, and rotten in the ground somewhere. Who then, that's why he's so freaked out. Because the dead guy standing right next to him, totally alive and in, in his glory. And so his entourage leads him into Damascus to the house of a guy named Judas. Not the Judas from the Gospels because he's D-E-A-D. So not him. Another Judas that we don't know anything about. He shows up here in Acts 9. So that's where they take him. Verse 9 says he's in Judas' house for three days, no food, no water, no nothing to drink. He is existing in the solitary blindness without food and water. And all he's seeing in the darkness of his mind and his eyes is Jesus. And I believe that was three days focusing on Christ. Concentrating on Jesus. Those were three days when the shock of the transformation in his life began to settle in a little bit. So he's somewhere on Straight Street is the name of the street. Somewhere on Straight Street in a fellow named Judas's house. And as he's there in Judas's house in Damascus on Straight Street, God is moving in the heart of another guy on the other side of town. So Paul is over here in Judas's house, still really blinded by the sight of the Savior, and God is moving in the heart of another dude on the other side of Damascus, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, not the Ananias from chapter 5 of Acts because he's, he's what? He's D-E-D? Where did you went to school? <laughs> he's dead. God smotened him. So, sorry about that, y'all. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him, said to Ananias in a vision, said Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Like the way that it sounds to me is that Ananias is a servant, like a real servant. He's at God's beck and call. Like the two of them have done this before. Ananias, here I am. What you want me to do? I'm ready, willing, able. What you, what you need for me to do today? Anything. I'll do anything. Now, he don't really know what he's saying when he says I'll do anything. Because God hadn't quite told him yet. But he's like, here I am. Send me. I got it. I'll do whatever. We've been doing this for quite a while, Lord. I'll do whatever it is what you need me to do. Verse 12 in, um, in chapter 22, when Paul is given his testimony before King Agrippa, this is the only other thing that we hear about Ananias. And it's Paul telling him, this guy Ananias, he's describing what happened later on, that Ananias was a devout man. That's the only other thing that we ever hear about this guy. He was a devout man. And it seems like he was probably some kind of leader in the church in Damascus. Maybe he was the leader. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But anyway, he said, I'm here, I'll do it, what you, need me, what you need for me to do. Now, if he was a leader, think about it. Ananias shows up super quick in Scripture, and, and he kind of disappears from Scripture super quick. This is just another place where we see God's sovereign hand in history. It is almost like Ananias is born and he's saved, and he's living in this place at this time, in this proximity to Judas's house, 
just to minister to Saul when Saul is born again into the kingdom. Just so happens. And the truth is, Saul is on his way there to kill him. Think about that. Why is he headed to Damascus? To beat, kill, ravage, wreak havoc, and drag him off in chains. So Saul is there to get him. And in God's sovereignty, Ananias is there to serve the Lord by serving Paul. Ain't God crazy? The way he just orchestrates stuff. Well, here's a little lesson. God is very intentional. May even say, say very selective. Selective intentionality. That's the Lord. He's intentional about who he chooses to accomplish his tasks. The things that he wants to get done. If you're a believer today, he has designed you. He has gifted you. He has given you certain skills and abilities. I sound like the movie Taken. He's given you certain skills and talents and abilities for, for, for what? For what? To carry out certain things under the umbrella of his master plan. He's wired each one of us up differently with skills and abilities and gifts. And like Ananias, me and you just got to be available. Here I am. What you want me to do? Here I am. I'm ready. Verse 11. And the Lord said to him. Said to who? Said to Ananias. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Now God exposes where he's, the anything just changed maybe a little bit in Ananias' mind. So Ananias is thinking, Saul, Lord, you sure? Saul? Like, he's got a reputation, and it's not really a good reputation. And up till this point, God had really revealed to him anything about Saul. And God, this is going to be like a little bit of a tough sale. Anything? He didn't really know what had happened at this point, what had happened. He didn't know that that Saul had, had given his life to Christ, that Saul was transformed just a few days before. So God says, go to Straight Street, which, by the way, y'all, is still there in Damascus. Different name, but the, the street is still there. So he says, go over to that end over there. And at the end of verse 11, he says, go over there, for behold, he is praying. Very important little nugget. Saul is over there at Judas's house, and he's going to be the one that's praying. And we don't know, again, anything about this guy, Judas, but God teed him up too. He was in the right place at the right time, probably got the gift of hospitality. Come on in. Somehow, Judas is impressed, somehow, and we're not told in Scripture, that this guy, Saul, and his little entourage, it's okay to let them in our house. God teed him up too, just like he teed up Ananias. Last week I said something that, and it just kind of came out. There's a shocker. Um, something in hindsight, though, that was kind of okay. Kinda, maybe it was kind of good. I, I said nobody is outside of the guardrails of God's grace. Nobody's outside of the guardrails of God's grace. I think Scripture teaches that in its entirety. Do you think, maybe, just maybe, that Judas and Ananias would have thought that Saul was outside of the guardrails of God's grace. I would say probably so. 
Ananias. Even though Ananias is the here I am, send me dude. Somewhere in there, and we're going to see why I say that in a second. Somewhere in there, they're probably thinking that a little bit. Or do you think that they had, because they're so holy, that they'd been praying for months and months about this guy named Saul that they heard of, that he would just bend his knees and land at the foot of the cross? No, I think, I, I think probably that they thought and believed that Saul was an enemy of God, that he would remain an enemy of God, and they needed to stay away from him. They needed to protect their families from him. They needed to hide if he came. Somewhere in there, there was probably a little of that. Anyway, I don't imagine that they had been just praying for Saul's salvation. But here he is over there, and God's grabbed a hold of him. He's been praying over there for three days, fervent prayer. Second thing in a transformed life, fervent prayer. He's been laying over there or sitting over there or standing over there, I don't know, but, but he's over there and somehow he is, he is in communication with the Lord. Somehow he is, he is talking with the Lord. The only thing that he could see in front of him in his mind's eye in the darkness of his blindness is the face of the Savior for three solid days. He's completely wrapped up in prayer. And this is not the first time that Saul ever prayed. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was a muckety-muck, a big shot Pharisee. This is just the first time the prayer ever got through. It's definitely not the first time he prayed. Previously, he prayed like a Pharisee. Why? Because he was a Pharisee. So he prayed like a Pharisee, depending on himself, depending on his self-righteousness. Now, for those three days, he's praying like a broken, repentant sinner, dependent on the mercy and the grace of the Savior. Have you ever been in that place where you're just overwhelmed with your sinnerness, with your sinfulness, that you're crying, or, or your circumstances, I don't know, whatever it is, and you go to the Lord and you hit your knees or you hit your face and you're praying in total dependence on the Savior. When you know that the only way that anything can change or transform, that is completely out of any sort of power or control that you would have or your mama, or your daddy, or your wife, or your husband, or anybody, totally out of any control, the only one that can do anything about it is the Savior. As weird as it sounds, those are some of the sweetest times ever, in hindsight. When we realize how broken we are, and how dependent we are. That's where Paul was on his face, on Straight Street, in this dude named Judas's house. And so God is working his deal here. Paul gets saved. You got this prayer thing. And Paul would write, later even write, he talks about prayer all the time. He even writes to the church of Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that you should be praying, praying, praying? Not really. It means your life should be an image of a life of prayer. You should, it should be such a 
integral part of your life because you are saved that your first thing, you just pray. It just comes out. And y'all be honest with you, I never said a prayer in my whole life until I was 37 years old. I had no idea how to pray. I used to be petrified when we would go to my wife's family's house when I was about 20, 16, 18, 20, 21 years old. Petrified that they would ask me to pray. Petrified. Never said a prayer in my life until I got saved and it just, it just came out. Like it's just part of my life. It just happens. I want to be in communication with the one that saved me in thankfulness, in gratefulness. Way less asking and way more thanking. That's Paul, Saul, at this moment on Straight Street. And so God's working his deal there in Damascus. And, and he's got a pair of two corresponding visions going on at two different sort of ends of the town. In verse 11, Ananias, it's like go over to Judas's house over there and you're going to find this Saul of Tarsus and he's going to be the one praying. And in verse 12, he goes on in this vision and says, and he, he's telling Ananias this, and he, Paul, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Paul, he tells Ananias, Paul's over there having a vision of you coming in there and laying hands on him. So God gives these two men visions that will, will bring them together, that will cross their paths randomly by chance. No, providentially. God ordained their paths to cross. You are not here right now, randomly. God orchestrates in his providence thing. So we see here two men that three days earlier could not bend any further apart. Like at two totally different ends of the spectrum. Literally at two different ends geographically of the town. And now they're on a collision course because God teed that up. So Paul's praying. Paul's praying. Fervently praying. And God's working on the answer. He always does that. He's working on the answer. Fervent prayer, major component of the Christian walk. Spurgeon said this. He said, prayer is a beautiful quote. Nobody can write like Spurgeon. He said, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit on the renewed heart. What a beautiful thing. Prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit on the heart that's been changed. He says, the renewed heart. So fervent prayer, second little trait. Third one is this. Third trait, third characteristic of a life that's been transformed is faithfulness in service. Faithfulness in service. I believe that just on the heels of new birth, just on the heels of being a new creation comes the want to to serve the one who did the saving. We don't know how long Ananias had been a believer. It probably had not been all that long. But I'm convinced that Ananias, from the moment he was saved, was a faithful servant. Well, why, you would ask. Well, thank you for asking. Because of his sensitivity to the voice of the Lord when the Lord speaks, when the Lord called his name. He was sensitive to that. And I'm not saying it was audible. The Bible doesn't say it was audible. It, said it, was, it says it was a vision. But he was sensitive to that. And, y'all, that's not easy to be discerning and sensitive to when the Lord is telling you something, saying something, 
impressing on you something and when it's not him. But Ananias was sensitive to that. Reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6 when God says, who should we send? And Isaiah jumps up and says, here I am, send me. So on this road, we get this man, Saul, who surrendered his life to Christ, submitted his life to Christ, and at that very instant, that instant of salvation, he never took back claim to his life. He said, I'm yours, Lord. He would later write, I've been crucified with you, and it's no longer I I who live, but you who lives in me. Paul never took back claim to his life until his head was laid on the block and an axe took his head off. Verse 13. Now here, here we get this little, little, little pushback from Ananias. Probably a little scared, a little bit. Like, Lord, I hear what you're, what you're saying, but let me, get, let me give you my thoughts on this. I can almost hear like, let me give you, you, need, let me give you some advice, Lord. I'm assuming, yeah, it's up. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Don't you know, Lord, this is the guy who is after all of us. Verse 14, and here, where's here? Here's Damascus. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon his name. Lord, he's got his papers in order. He can do whatever he wants to with us. Don't you understand that, Lord? And, you know, Ananias is trying to help God a little bit. Do you know, Lord, what you're asking me to do? But you know what? God didn't rebuke Ananias because I think God knew it was going to be a little bit of a hard sell. For two or three years, Paul had been wreaking havoc. Saul had been wreaking havoc. So the Lord didn't rebuke Ananias. He didn't tell him to shut up and grow up. He didn't tell him to pull his pants up and be a man. He didn't say any of that. He was gracious. Really, he knew that this was going to be a little hard to handle. He also knew that Ananias was a faithful servant. He knew that this selling Ananias, that this man who came to capture and kill Christians was now one himself, was not going to be easy for him to understand. Tell the truth, y'all. Have you ever heard about a friend of yours that was you went to high school with or you went to middle school with or something and somebody tells you he got saved? And you say, what? I was the one that they said that about. Ed Griffinhagen got saved? You've got to be kidding. He's way on the other side of the guardrails. Y'all, nobody... Nobody is outside the guardrails of God's grace. But I know that it's a little bit of a hard sale for Ananias. So the Lord accepts Ananias' doubt, and he one-ups him in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go. And I love this, go, just go. He's like, just go. But then he says, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Ananias, dude, just go. And y'all, implicit in all of that is God saying, I've got your back. Like, I got your back. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 28? I'm with you always. Always doesn't mean I'm with you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. No, 
If you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, He is with you always, all the time. He goes before you, every situation you're ever in. So implicit in what God is telling Ananias is, I will be with you, and I got your back. And I really like it when God is clear. And here he even gives a little bit of an explanation. He's my chosen instrument, Ananias. But God says, go, here in Acts 9, in Matthew 28, Great Commission, go. He says, go. Does he say, go someday? No. He says, go now. Go when you have a little extra time in your Outlook calendar, your Google calendar. No. No, he says, go now. Go someday? No, go now. God's probably got like this. Don't say this is heresy. God's got like this little file next to his desk up there in heaven somewhere, and it's a someday file. It's a someday file. Lord, someday, as soon as I get the house painted, get the shed built in the backyard, I'm going to go share my Jesus story with old Bill next door. Someday, I'm going to do that someday. And God's like, there's another one for my someday file. Somebody else is going, I feel like the Lord wants me to lead a growth group. But you know, someday, as soon as I get this whole new job thing under control, someday, someday I'm going to do that. Boom, God's like, got another one for the someday file. As an aside on the growth group thing, um, next Sunday after church, uh, probably 12:15 or so, we're going to have a very casual gathering next door on the kids' side for anybody that has ever, that has, has just thought about leading a growth group. Question and answers, not a training time, not a Bible study, just what does it look like to lead a growth group, and, and I know that that can be a scary thing to think about, but if, you have, if you're thinking about it at all, we want to answer the questions, what are my responsibilities if I'm going to lead a growth group? What, um, what does it look like to lead a growth group? Can I do it, do I got to do it at my house, or can I do it in the church, or what is the curriculum, blah, blah, blah. Whatever, any question if you ever had about leading a growth group next Sunday for 30, 45 minutes will be over there <clears throat> to answer questions. So I know I ought to lead a growth group. I feel a little nudged by God to do that. I'm, I'll do that Sunday. There's another one for the Sunday file. I know little Johnny, I drop him off in the kids' side, you know, about every Sunday when I'm at church. And I know I ought to serve in the kids' side, you know, I ought to volunteer over there once or twice a month. You know, I'll do it someday as soon as we can get our Sunday morning routine straight. You know, we've got, we've got two children, and our Sunday mornings are turned upside down. And when, as soon as we get our routine straight on Sunday morning, someday I'll, I'll serve over there for an hour once every 30 days. Someday I'll do that. Well, let me tell you something, y'all. God ain't interested in your Sunday. He's not. Someday will never come. You are never going to get to someday. God wants your love and your investment and your service today, not someday, immediately. And God says in verse 15 to Ananias, this guy Saul, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles. He's saved and his job is settled, just like that. No difference between his salvation and his call. Boom, he's saved and called. Just like that. And we're not going to get to verse 20 today, 
But it says, and immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. Someday? No. The Bible says immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Saul had only been a believer for just a little while, y'all, just a little while. And he's already preaching the gospel. I got saved super early in 2001, and I felt very led to jump in and try to learn more about this whole Jesus dude and, and this whole Christian thing. And there was a school at the time that was based in Columbus called Beacon University. Anybody ever remember Beacon? Uh, Ron Cottle was the dean, I guess you would say. Um, it was Beacon University. Probably about a month after I got saved. I jumped in and I took an Old Testament class. There's a shocker. I took an Old Testament class at Beacon. And when I met the instructor, his name was LeBron Matthews. Good guy, LeBron Matthews, was the pastor at Eastern Heights Baptist Church down kind of by, by Lake Bottom. And LeBron, so this is in, uh, got saved in the middle of January, started school at Beacon like in February sometime. And, uh, and, a, and, and uh, LeBron called me. And said, uh, uh, asked me, is in April, in April, in the middle of April. Well, kind of toward the end of April. Now think about it. LeBron calls me in April, about two and a half months after I got saved. And he called and told me that he was going to be out of town on the 22nd of April, which was, I believe, a week or two after Easter of 2001. He said, I'm going to be out of town on April 22nd. Do you want to preach? And I said, do what? Like, do what? I don't even know. What, what does that mean? What does preach mean? Think about it, y'all. I had only been into a Christian Sunday morning service six times in my whole life, and that was that last five or six or seven weeks. So he says, do you want to preach? I said, well, Dr. Matthews, like, like someday, maybe, uh, like, and he said, no, 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 not someday, April 22nd. And I said, man, and I start thinking in my mind, go make disciples. Go be my witnesses. Go be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And go. Go. The Lord says last words, man. Go. And I was honestly, transparent, transparency, I was petrified. I said yes. And he said, oh, by the way, it's going to be on the radio, on WDAK. <laughs> on WDAK. Who remembers WDAK? Channel 54. Guess what channel my dad listens to? WDAK. So that made me more scared. You know, my, but, but then I'm like, why would my dad be listening to Eastern Heights Baptist Church? And he wasn't. But, you know, the devil's putting all that in your ear. But I said, I, so I said, okay. And I was scared, but I trusted that God was in that. You know, that God crossed Dr. Matthew's life in my life. That God somehow nudged him to ask me to do that. Totally unqualified. Like, I couldn't have been more unqualified, more um, ill-equipped to go <laughs> to go to that church and and do that. I was totally not equipped. It's crazy, but God went before me, right? God always goes before you. God's teeing stuff up. You see that here, and it was the coolest. Honestly, it was the coolest experience of my life. I was sweating bullets, shaking like a crazy man, but it was the coolest experience of my life. And somebody got led to Christ that day, for a fact I know. Super, super cool. For me, that, that, that listening, I guess, for me it plays out, or it, it 
well, it played out and it's playing out in, in preaching. And y'all, there are plenty, plenty of, of, of needs around our church, needs around the body of Christ everywhere. And they're not being met because everybody's going to jump in someday. God does not want you someday. He wants you now. Now. So God trumps Ananias' protest. And he says that this guy Paul is my elected vessel. He's my chosen instrument. He says, Ananias, I'm doing a thing. And I'm the one that has selected, elected, chosen, and it's Saul, and he is going to be the instrument. The instrument for what? To convey, the Lord is like, to convey my grace, to preach my word. He goes on in verse 16, he says, For I, I, the Lord, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul did suffer. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, kind of gives us a little list. Of all of it. Despite all of that, Ananias is obedient. And we touched on this verse last week, verse 17. So Ananias departed. Did he depart someday? No. No, he departed that day. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And he doesn't even know it, y'all, but he's going to commission Saul. That's what he's doing. He doesn't know that. It's God's plan. He's just doing what God said, go to Ananias, uh, go to, to Judas's house. And the Bible says, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, this is the commissioning, y'all. He's commissioning Saul as God's instrument. And he, ju- he just went to help him to understand what, what God had called him to do. He just went to minister to Saul, to help Saul understand what had happened. If you're a believer here today and you think back to the, the, if you can remember the second that you got saved, it's overwhelming. Like, I don't even know how am I supposed to think and what am I supposed to say and what should I be doing and this and that and other thing. And so God's teed Ananias up to go there and minister to Saul. That's what he's doing. He's ministering to Saul and he's commissioning Saul. So he says, Brother Saul, those words coming out of Ananias' mouth to Saul must have been some of the most comforting words that Saul had ever heard in his life because he calls him brother. It might as well be saying, Saul, my brother in Christ, because that's what that means. So he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with with the Holy Spirit. And so God in his sovereignty, he uses this regular guy, and maybe he's in some kind of leadership in that church in Damascus, but he's not an apostle. He's not a big shot rabbi. He's just a regular guy. Godly guy, devout guy, but a regular guy. And we may would have would think really given Saul's selection as an pretty incredibly key man in the tapestry that God's weaving and weaves over over the next what 30 40 50 years we maybe would think that it would be Peter or James or John or Andrew or one of the the apostles that one of them would be chosen to minister to such an important new follower of the way 
Not so. God calls this unknown disciple named Ananias for that task. God's been doing that all throughout history. All throughout history. God uses, quote, the nobodies to get accomplished what he wants to get accomplished. I want to give you a couple of nobodies. And I want to see if any of y'all have ever, ever heard their names. And if you have, raise your hand. And then I'm going to tell you who they are. How about John Stoppitz? S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z. Nobody. He led Martin Luther to Christ about 500 years ago. Think Martin Luther's a pretty important dude? How about John Eglin? E-G-G-L-E-N. Anybody ever heard of John Eglin? Fundamental guy in the conversion of C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon been an important dude in, across the history of Christendom in the 1800s. How about Edward Kimball? Anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? He was the MyPillow guy from a long time ago. Shoe salesman. Shoe salesman. But he also happened to be D.L. Moody's total spiritual mentor. How about Mordecai Ham, which, by the way, is the coolest name ever. <laughs> Mordecai, that's like a, really, it's like a football name. Mordecai, somebody was Jewish. But then it's hilarious, the last name's Ham, because that's unkosher, man. We ain't no Ham. Mordecai Ham, what a cool name. Like, I want to put Mordecai on the back of my shirt. Who was Mordecai Ham? Say again. Did y'all hear that? Mordecai Ham, little known evangelist, very little known evangelist, leads Billy Graham to Christ. He's preaching the night, he's preaching the gospel the night that Billy Graham gets saved. Can you imagine? That joker's head ain't big enough for the crowns that are going on him. He led Billy Graham to Christ? How many people did Billy Graham lead to Christ? Because Mordecai Ham listened to what God said. Someday? No, that day. That day. You never, ever know how God might use you to touch a life that will then in turn touch thousands or millions of lives. You never know. We're called to be obedient. Submit yourself to whatever it is that God's doing. Be faithful when he calls. Want me to serve on the kids' side? Lord, I'll do it. Want me to serve in the tots area? I'll do it. Do I need to go out on the street and, and serve in the homeless community? I'll do it. I don't really feel like going out on the street. That's not how you wired me up. Lord, I'll, but I'll cook for it. Lord, I'll support it financially. Lord, you want, you want me to stand at the door and smile and greet people in your name? I'll do that. I'm wired up that way. I'll do that. And I'll do it now. Do it someday. No, I'll do it now. Whatever it is, y'all, whatever it is, the transformed life, we are saved to serve. We are not saved to sit at home and play video games. We are saved to serve. We are saved to serve the Lord. How do we serve the Lord? We, we serve the Lord by serving the body of Christ. We serve the Lord by serving out in the streets. All to bring Him honor, to bring Him praise, to bring Him glory. 
I want to be known as the guy who served the Lord from day one. That's, what I, that's, just, that's the way I want to be known. Not as a great dad, not as a great husband, not as a great pastor. I definitely won't be known as that. Not as a great granddad. Like I want to be all those things for sure. I want to be a wonderful husband to my wife. Of, of, of course I want to be a wonderful dad to my two sons. And I definitely want to be a, a good granddad to sweet Caroline and little Zachary. I do. I do want to be all those things for sure. But I want my legacy to be that Ed loved and served the Lord from January 17, 2001 till they stuck him in the ground. That's the legacy that I want for me. And if you're a Christian today, you should be known for your service. If you ain't got no service, then you're a contradiction in terms. Is that clear? If you ain't got no service, you're a contradiction in terms. 20-ish years after this happened with Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is so beautiful. He wrote, this is how one should regard us. Who is us? Us are the saints. Us are the followers of the way, the believers. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We should be servants of Christ and stewards of the truths of Scripture. When somebody points at you and, and, and they say, that Lonnie was a soldier, soldier. What a great soldier he was. And now he's working as a contractor at Fort Bill. What a great soldier. No, no. That Lonnie's a servant of the Lord. That's what should be said, right? That Gerald, best teacher ever lived on the planet. No, that Gerald was a faithful servant of the Lord until the Lord took him home. Y'all, that's what Paul is saying. That's the legacy that every one of us should be leaving. We were faithful servants of his, and we were stewards of the truths of Scripture. What does that mean, to be a steward of the truths of Scripture? It's just like being a steward of your checking account. You take care of it. You love it. You coddle it. And you're wise and discerning in the use of it. Be a faithful steward of the truths of Scripture. So we, 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 all of us should be identified by our service to Christ. What are you doing for Him? What is your service? How are you using your spiritual gifts? How are you using your skills? How are you using the abilities that God has given you? How are you using your talents? If you're not using them for the kingdom, you're a contradiction in terms. The transformed life. All kind of different responses to this, really. Kind of talked about them. First and foremost, the most important response is placing saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. For sure. But maybe... Maybe your response today is, I've been a believer, but my prayer life has stunk for 10 years. Maybe today is a day that you say, you know what? I'm making room in my schedule, and I'm going to pray. My prayer life ain't right. Really, it never has been right. 
with intentionality, systematically, methodically. I've never, I've never done that, really. But it's in God's providence, somebody in our church texted me yesterday. It was yesterday, wasn't it? The, a little book that her dad had written called The Most Important Hour of the Day. It says every day when you get up, that first hour is the most important hour of the day to spend with the Lord, stewarding the relationship with Him in prayer, reading His Word. Maybe that's a response today for you. I'm up in my game and my prayer life. Or I got there's somebody that I really need to concentrate and fervently be praying for. Maybe your response today is to be faithful in service, to realize that God saved you to serve, saved you to serve Him. There's really not a disconnect between salvation and call, right? But again, I don't know what it is for you, but there's a response that's, that's, that's called for. And so it's got to begin with placing saving faith and trust in the Lord. And if you've never done that, I ask you to do that today. It's not a complicated thing. Um, it's simply repenting, turning away from your sin and turning towards the Lord and, 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 and trusting that that death on that cross was sufficient for your eternity sufficient to save you and crying out to him Lord save me and he will y'all if you would close your eyes and, 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 and kind of bow your head and you can grab that. if that's you today it's as simple as Lord I'm turning away best I can from my sin and Lord I'm turning towards you and I want you to save me and I believe you died on the cross and I believe that it took care of my sin and I believe Lord that you walked out of that grave alive. Lord, save me right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, and if y'all need prayer at all, if it's for that kind of a deal in your life, or for whatever it is, our prayer team is back in that corner. They would love to pray with you. I would love to talk to you after church. I'm going to be out there by the, if I've never, if we've never had a conversation, I would love to talk to you back out there by those couches uh, after church is over. I'm going to turn it back over to the worship team.
guide okay the next six weeks of what we're doing here at church on the trails in the worship guide god bless y'all we'll see you next week